0: Hello, Grace Point. It is so good to be together this morning. We're so glad you're here, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. Wherever you are in the world, we are so glad that you found us. Today, we're going to be wrapping up what is progressive Christianity. This specific iteration of it, we'll come back to this again and again over the years. Um, But before we jump in, I wanted to share a little news. We have some staff news. As you know, we've been uh, preparing for some transition in our staff. We've been searching for a uh permanent um music and arts director and we we, um, recently announced that lisa barton is going to be transitioning off staff so i want to share a little bit of news about both of those first of all uh, when it comes to music and arts director we've uh, made a decision we've hired somebody uh, and it's somebody who's going to be really familiar to you Uh, we interviewed a lot of great people and a lot of great conversations and just met a lot of talented folks, but um, I'm thrilled to tell you that Ricky Braddy, who's been our interim Music and Arts Director, we're gonna just take the interim off and Ricky's gonna be in that role uh, moving forward. And we're so excited, we're so grateful for the good job he's done over these months and really, really excited to um, see where things go in the future. Uh, And about our uh, Kids Director, Grace Point Kids Director, Lisa had sort of said she hoped to be transitioning out of the role by May. And so we wanted to have a little time with maybe a little overlap so that there could be sort of a a transfer of roles and responsibilities and that sort of thing. So beginning in April, um, Molly Brown is going to step in as the interim Grace Point Youth and Kids Director. Um, And over the month of April, she'll be working with Lisa, uh, sort of learning the process and all of that. And then in May, Molly will be stepping into that role as the interim Youth and Kids Director and we will continue the process of uh, taking resumes, posting the job, all that sort of thing. So we're really excited about both of these folks. Uh, Really grateful for all Lisa has done and just really excited about the future. So um, Ricky, congratulations. We're so glad, so glad to have you on board. And Molly, we are so glad that you're stepping in that role. We're so excited to see how you lead lead us and where you take us. Uh, And using kids. So um, really good news on the front end. And now, uh, today, I thought what we would do is take some time to just respond to questions. Throughout this series, I know that there have been things that have popped up that people have wondered about or like, well, what about this? What about that? And so um, I tried to uh, synergize, I guess is the right word. I tried to combine questions as best I could because I only have you know, a certain amount of time to respond to these. So if you sent in a question and you don't hear it addressed today, it is either one, because it's gonna be addressed in an upcoming series, or two, it just wasn't something I could fit into this particular iteration of it, but I'm happy to still respond to it. So if you send me an email and say, hey, I, you, know, you didn't get this one. I'd love to hear you talk about it. I'd be happy to do that. So so let's begin. I thought we should begin um, with uh, maybe, maybe the first question I received, and it reads like this. What's a good way to explain to your old denomination that your theology has changed and you don't want to attend that church anymore without being condescending? It's a great question, it's a great question. And honestly, a question that I, I totally understand the, the struggle of, because um, I'll say I'll this, when I'm out at a restaurant, if something happens and something's not right with my order, I never ever wanna say anything, I just don't. I, I would love to take the path of less conflict as much as humanly possible. Um, I don't know if it seems that way, but that is the actual, like how I'm actually wired Um, So my first thought is to say, how do you tell your old denomination that you've changed and you're moving on, that you don't want to be there anymore without coming off condescending? My first thought was to say, well, it's not you, it's me, (laughs) right? Like, I mean, I'm sure some of us watching this right now, we've been, it's not you, it's me uh, in our lives. And I say that partially in jest, but it's partially true as well, Um, because many of us were in communities or in denominations, and we saw things a certain way, the way they did right? When, when I was starting out and I was going to a particular church, a, a Southern Baptist church, I kind of saw the world the way Southern Baptists saw the world. I, I saw my beliefs based on the doctrinal statements we held in the church, but then something happened. And for all of us, it, it's, it'll be a little different story, but something happened and something shifted in us. And we began a journey that would see us reimagine, reframe, and reclaim faith in what has become for me exciting ways. And so I think it's possible to just be honest and say, my journey is taking me in a different direction. My faith, my values, they've shifted and I wanna be upfront with you and I wanna be fair with you and I wanna be fair with myself. Because it's important to to really name that your journey is not up for debate and you ultimately don't need their approval to go on it. It might be nice, it might be nice for somebody to say, gosh, I totally, that's not my journey, but it's your journey and I totally wish you well on it. But the reality is, is we don't need anybody's blessing to follow where we believe we're being led, where, where we think that truth is taking us or spirit is taking us, wherever the wind is blowing, uh, whatever direction that's blowing us in that we believe is is paying attention to our doubts and paying attention to our questions and paying, because actually doubts and questions are central to faith. Um, so I, I would say that, I would also say, I think we have to at times put in boundaries maybe that, that are uncomfortable to do, but to say, look, as if, if somebody doesn't really Respect your journey. Maybe to say, look, this is this is not a thing that's up for debate. It's not a thing that, um, that if you can't honor where I'm at and where I'm going, maybe not uh, maybe not a thing we should actually talk about. Um, so your, your journey is not up for debate. Um, where you're going uh, it is. Uh, a journey you have to take and so I would just say that I would say the truth is we have to recognize it is important to recognize that very likely the denomination didn't I mean sometimes it can but generally the church or the denomination didn't shift it was the shift in us so just naming that up front and say hey I know you haven't moved I've moved and I have to follow this particular direction I hope that's helpful Um, this is a really good question too How do progressive Christians interpret difficult scriptures like the Sodom and Gomorrah story in Genesis or wives submitting to husbands in Ephesians? Those are two really good examples. And I want to focus a bit on the Sodom and Gomorrah story because this one has been used in, I mean, the whole Bible in some ways has been used by people as uh, has been weaponized. But in this particular story, it's been weaponized against the LGBTQ plus community. And it still is being in really, really painful, really, really awful ways. And so how how would a progressive Christian interpret difficult scriptures like this? I I would say three things on the front end. Context, context, context. Did I mention context, right? Context is everything when it comes to the Bible. What we sometimes do is we build up all these presuppositions. We have all these assumptions about what a text means because that's how it's been passed down. That's how the interpretation has come to us. And so in in some ways we look at the text and that interpretation jumps out at us. Why wouldn't it? It's what we have been trained to see. Uh, Richard Rohr says you can't see what you weren't taught to look for and and so it's important for us to come to the Bible with an acknowledgement that we have a lens and for some of us, for people like me, that lens can actually act as a barrier at times to see what's going on. Uh, When you're a person of privilege coming to a text written by an oppressed and marginalized person there, there are a lot of things to go through to even begin to maybe possibly be able to see it, and engage it. So context is important. And I want to give you just a little bit of context around the Sodom and Gomorrah story, because it's been so used to instigate homophobia and to marginalize the LGBTQ community. Um, so this just on the front end, I'll say this. This story, Sodom and Gomorrah, is not in any way, shape or form about same sex relationships about same-sex romance, it's not about anything in terms of relationships in that way. It's actually a story that is talking about hospitality customs in the ancient world. And I know when we hear that, there's sort of this eye roll, like, seriously, you're just trying to interpret the Bible to explain something away to do? No, 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 that's actually not what's going on. The ancient world, in so many ways, is different from 21st century America. So many drastic, big ways, it's different. And this idea of hospitality, it isn't just sort of a, an add-on. It isn't trivial. It is central, central to the whole idea of honor-shame culture. And, and people live bound by these hospitality customs. Um, that if a stranger came to your town, you, were to, you owed them food. You owed them a place to sleep. You owed them your protection. Because if you didn't protect them, then you, you, would, you may end up being cursed by God or cursed by the gods. If you allow... Uh, some danger to befall a stranger that you're responsible for. So uh, this is a major custom. And what happens in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is that uh, these angels who are supposed to represent God, there are three of them, um, and they go, I think they're three, and they go to this village, Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, Abraham has a relative there, Lot and his family. And they tell him because the city is so wicked, God's going to destroy it. And they uh, ask them to leave. Uh, And while that's happening, people of the town come and essentially um, are trying to take these people and sexually assault them and and kill them. That's what's happening in the story. Now, why would we even begin to read it in in another way? Because there are actually clues in other parts of the Bible where some of the writers uh, actually sort of try to share their perspective on the story. Listen to this from Ezekiel the prophet. This, and Ezekiel is addressing the unfaithfulness of Israel, and he's doing that through uh, indicting Sodom. He's sort of saying, you all right now, the way you're going, it looks a lot like this. Ezekiel 16, 49. This was the guilt of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Listen to those words. Here's the sin of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. There are actually stories in Midrash. Midrash is essentially a kind of commentary on the text um, that that would be attached to the scrolls sometimes. Uh, And there are these stories in Midrash about how the people of Sodom would actually cover the trees so birds couldn't eat the berries of the trees. They're so inhospitable. They're not just being inhospitable human beings. They're actually trying, they're, they're being inhospitable to anything and everything that has breath. And what's interesting when we come to the New Testament, Jesus it actually agrees with this interpretation. When he's sending his disciples out to announce the good news of the kingdom of God, that it's not somewhere else, that it's right here, if we just open our eyes. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 10. When you go to a village, if you go to a house, if a house is worthy, let your peace. And essentially, worthy would be in this case, they they practice hospitality. You come to town, they open up their home to you, they give you food, they give you a place to sleep, and they give you safety. If a house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave the house or town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. What is Jesus saying? He's not not talking about who you love here. Jesus is saying, if you go to a place and they're not hospitable. So the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a story about what happens in a culture when instead of being... Hospitable to strangers, instead of providing aid to the poor and needy, instead of providing safety to people who are in danger. If you live in a place where xenophobia is running rampant, if you live in a place where this sort of hatred for anyone different than you, when you live in a place with all these phobias and isms that just build layers and layers between us, large fences between us, and you're actually going maybe even out of your way to make it difficult for people who are strangers to you, that that society is in trouble because that society is potentially on its way to collapse. I think that's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so when this story is used to wound and weaponize and bring shame on people, the people doing the weaponizing are the people of Sodom, not the person being um, wounded by them. And that is a tragic irony in the story that the very people who think they're being often faithful to the Bible are actually engaging in the very sin of Sodom that they're accusing other people of engaging in. Um, now, Ephesians, when it comes to wives submitting to their husbands, uh, you know, I would say it's a cultural sort of a cu- cultural issue. But I think it's going a little bit deeper than that. A good significant body of scholars would say that Ephesians actually wasn't written by Paul. It was actually probably written after Paul's lifetime, maybe by somebody who knew Paul, maybe by somebody who had a relationship with Paul, a student of Paul. But this person um, was writing um, under the name of Paul. They call it pseudepigraphic. Um, anyway it's essentially writing under a false name and often this would happen in the ancient world to sort of lend credibility to your words because hey we got this this letter from Paul let's listen to it and so in this letter of Ephesians here's what I think happens I think Paul actually for all the bad rap he gets Paul says he actually makes some statements that are radical Way ahead of their time in human history. For example, in Galatians uh, chapter three, he says that in Christ there is no male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave or free. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So in the early Christian community, they practiced a radical egalitarianism where everybody was equal, right? So where this in the culture they lived in, women would serve the men and just eat at a different table the rich would eat with the rich and they would eat better food and the poor would eat with the poor and eat whatever they could bring, right? It was very stratified. It was very, um, in some ways, very like middle school cafeteria, right? Where everybody's got their own table and and there's no cross pollination between the groups. And what happens in the early Jesus community is this this breaking down of all those barriers and a a radically inclusive, radically hospitable, radically uh, beautiful movement begins and I think in some places um, that as this movement begins to, to spread what's happening in the Christian community is beginning to draw a lot of attention right it's beginning to draw a lot of attention because well this is not how we do things there's a, there was actually a period of time when uh, the church was so far ahead of culture that s- maybe some people within the church were trying to say look let's let's try to adopt a little bit more of these cultural norms because, We don't need to be raising eyebrows at what we're doing. The the empire already doesn't like us. They already see us as a threat. Um, So let's try, and I think that's what's happening in the pastoral epistles, which are later dated much later than Paul's life, where it says things like women can't speak in the assembly and women should be silent. And uh, I don't think that has any bearing on us today. I think it is the church trying to negotiate a really, really for them a difficult spot. Um, in a particular time and place. And so I think context with any Bible story. And look, there are some stories that are just, no matter how much context you try to give them, they're, they're hard, uh, they're challenging to figure out, they're, they're just a little weird. Um, there's even stories in the New Testament like that that we'll, talk, we'll try to tackle at some point. But um, I, I think that's what we see happening in that story. That's a good question. And I love this next one too. Um, they're all really great. How do we approach the separate and sometimes conflicting accounts? of the resurrection. Um, And so here's the thing, no matter how you slice it, no matter how you read it, uh, the Easter stories are very different from one another. And there's some interesting things that emerge when you dig into them as individual accounts, right? When you don't try to figure out how to to sort of harmonize them or how to bring them together. It's sort of what we do at Christmas, right? There are two Christmas stories, very different Christmas stories. And what we often see in Christmas pageant is we see those stories. What we often see in um, a a story of Jesus' life or uh, all of the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but even John at times, just being brought together and harmonized in a way that tries to explain, essentially part of it's just trying to tell the story and the other part of it is trying to even out some of the the difficulty of these conflicting reports. Let me give you an example just uh, off the top. So the location is different depending uh, for, for the experience of the risen Christ. The location is different depending on the text, depending on which gospel you're in. For example, if you go to the Gospel of Mark, which was the first gospel to be written, and it's almost universally agreed on that Mark wrote first, Um, You go to the Gospel of Mark, you get to Mark 16, eight verses. uh, Now, later scribes added on some verses and and lots of modern translations. They'll be in smaller print and italicized with a note that says, these on the oldest and, and most reliable copies of the Gospel of Mark, these endings aren't present. But it, it's eight verses, and it, it, it sort of goes like this. The women go to the tomb, and when they get to the tomb, the stone's rolled away, and there's a young man. It's not an angel. It's just a young man in white sitting, sitting there, and the young man in white tells the women who've come to the tomb that Christ isn't there, and he's risen. Uh, and they walk away in terror, saying nothing to no one, right? That's how, and you can see why somebody would read that and go, that's a cliffhanger. Let's just have it. Let's, we got to bring Jesus in at the end here. We need a resurrection experience in Mark. actually Mark's account is one of, it's probably my second favorite, uh, maybe third, um, because it leaves that sort of mystery around what is Easter, and and what are the implications of Easter, Uh, and then, but if you go on to other gospels, you'll find debating or competing traditions, you'll find a Galilee tradition, and you'll find a Jerusalem tradition. For example, John situates his uh, first, there's two resurrection accounts in John. One is Added to the end, likely by another author um, or an editor, and one in the the last one it happens in Galilee on the beach. uh, In the earlier account in John, uh, it happens in Jerusalem. Right in Matthew, it happens on a mountain in Galilee. So these gospels—I mean, that's just one of the areas where there are different traditions about where these disciples experienced. Um, The risen Christ. I find all of that really fascinating and I love to read books about it and I love to study scholarship. I just find it a really interesting discussion how the early Christian community um, talked about the resurrection of Jesus. And when it comes to Paul who wrote about it at first, we get really no details, no empty tomb, no no real details at all other than that Christ died and that Christ was raised up by God. Uh, So really, really interesting. I try to approach these resurrection stories the same way I approach the Christmas stories um, and, and that is by trying not to harmonize them. There, there is this temptation to want to just bring it all together in a nice neat package, but I think what that ultimately does is it, uh, it, it doesn't respect the, art- the artistic creativity of the original writer of the story because each gospel writer told their Jesus story in the way they told it because they had an agenda, right? At the end of the Gospel of John, the, uh, or in, before the added on ending in chapter 20, the author basically says, I wrote these things so that you would believe in Jesus as the Christ and so that you would find life in him. Right? That's pretty, Luke essentially says at the beginning, Hey, there there are a lot of accounts going on around about the life of Jesus and what happened. I'm trying to write an ordered account based on what I've heard about the life of Jesus and and how it happened. Right? So these authors are all doing their own interesting things. And when we try to harmonize them, we sort of silence all those voices to create a narrative that maybe feels more cohesive and coherent to us, but at the same time, we lose the interesting notes and interpretations these authors are giving us about the experience of Jesus. So I try to approach these stories on their own. I try to engage them on their own. I try to be inspired by them on their own because my assumption is whatever the original Easter experience was, right? Whatever it was like, wherever it happened, however these disciples realized that Christ was not a figure of the past, but is a figure of the present, uh, when they realized God had raised up Jesus from the grave, I, whenever that moment happened, it was so inspiring to them that they could not encapsulate it just in one telling. That it required m- multiple—I uh, think of it like uh, multiple records. Multiple—you know—you you pop in a, you pop a record on, and you play it, and you're hearing that particular artist. And I think we're doing that with each of these gospels, and I think it's just so wonderful. I love it so much. Um, At some point, we'll probably do a series, maybe around Easter one year, just around all the different resurrection stories, listening to them and sort of their own, the the notes they want to play and what their argument and case and and what they're trying to say to us is. I hope that's helpful. If you have, if you ask that question, you have follow-ups, please let me know. Um, Next, I grew up with a toxic, parentheses, too much of a good thing, dose of positivity in the church, and it left folks feeling discouraged to question and to feel. I'm curious about your thoughts on positivity culture and how it manifests in progressive Christianity, good or bad. So the moment I read this question, I remembered a story of, gosh, when I was probably around 20 years old, um, I was uh, at my home church and I was talking to somebody who had experienced a death in his family and uh, I said, gosh, I'm just really, really sorry to hear about the passing of your loved one. And he basically responded with, like, I, I can't be sad. I can't be sad that she, I mean, I, you know, I love her, but she's, she's, she's in heaven now. I, I can't feel sad. It would be, you know, essentially implying it would be wrong to feel sad. Um, this idea that being a faithful Christian involves never grieving, never experiencing anger, um, the, the way it has been used to shame people for experiencing things like depression or anxiety, the way the church has not just ignored issues around mental health, but has also actively harmed people by suggesting that if you aren't completely um, healthy and happy, and if everything's just not bright and shiny, uh, then somehow you were unfaithful or you just didn't believe it enough. I mean, to be a Christian is to be on a path of joy. Yes, there's joy. But it is also a path that is comfortable asking the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Jesus, we see bundled up together the human experience of joy and the human experience of despair and desolation. We see Jesus celebrating with his followers on Palm Sunday. We see Jesus weeping, crying tears of blood in the garden of Gethsemane on uh, Thursday night. This story can handle the tension. So I I think, um, I I think that the Tendency to err, just to want to be everything on the on the on the high, on the good, on the joy. I mean, we we have created a, this sort of narrative in especially evangelical Christian church where if everything is not mountaintop, if everything doesn't just blow us away, if we don't have the right feeling, if we somehow experience a feeling of doubt or if, if, a feeling of discouragement or a feeling of worry, anxiety, like if our feelings don't match what the particular religious experience thinks they should be that there's something wrong with us. And I just want to say there's nothing that, that is part of what it means to be human. And the church shouldn't be shaming people for it. The church should be addressing it. The church should be engaging it and the church should be saying that who you, who you are in your experience, you're welcome here. There is no shame here. What you feel is what you feel. And we want to be in community together. I love what Paul says in first uh, Corinthians 12, where he's talking about how the church is the body of Christ. And he essentially says, when one, when one part of the body rejoices, the whole body rejoices. When one part of the body weeps, the entire body weeps. And it is possible for human beings, for a community to hold all of those at the same time. Right? You do not have to diminish your pain because somebody else is celebrating something wonderful. You don't have to minimize your joy because somebody else is struggling. We meet each other in that space and we bring this wonderful human thing called empathy into the discussion where we begin to realize, yes, I'm experiencing this and other people experience and we can all experience what we're, we can all be present to our feelings and thoughts, our emotions. We can be present to them. We don't have to be ashamed of them. And it can actually lead to, to a really healthy, not only healthy community, but really healthy people, I think. Um, and then, um, Here's um, the last one I'm going to dig into. Is Christianity, i.e. Jesus, the only way to God? If Jesus is not literally the son of God, is he not just an enlightened being through whose story and example we can see, feel, draw near to God? And if that is the case, isn't he like Muhammad or the Buddha and uh, other similar enlightened beings about whom we may not know? Are those other beings and other methods such as Native American belief systems or mysticism not also pass to see, feel, and draw nearer to God. Um, The Bible learned in me wants to first address the son of God part, and then we'll address the as Jesus the only way part. So what's interesting is when the the phrase son of God pops up in the new Testament applied to Jesus, it has two meanings. um, And we generally have missed both of them because we've just focused on, like the, the focus has been on, well, if you drew Jesus's DNA, It wouldn't be another human being, it wouldn't, it would be God's DNA, right? Like that's sort of the the way we've approached it. So son of God means that, that Jesus was, you know, essentially Jesus would have divine DNA as opposed to human DNA. Um, Here's what's the problem with that. There are two meanings in the ancient world for son of God. The first meaning is from the Jewish tradition. And in that tradition to be the son of God was to be the king. Uh, ruling over Israel. So um, this pops up in the story of David. When, when David um, wants to build a temple for God, God essentially says, David, you can't do that. You're not the one to do that, but your son Solomon will. And if your son Solomon will be faithful, your son will be, um, you will always have a descendant. If your descendants are faithful, you'll have a descendant on the throne forever. And that king will be my son and I will be his father. And when you get into the Psalms and you read things, they are actual coronation songs uh, songs and psalms um, that display this image of the king being um essentially uh, connected in that way to god the son of god um so that's the first in the second in, in the the context of the new testament very specifically um son of god was a title claimed by caesar so when julius caesar died and his son adopted nephew who became his heir octavian who became augustus when he um takes the throne, he, before he takes the throne, he essentially, there's this moment where um, they're holding some games in honor of uh, Julius Caesar who'd been deified because you could deify people after death in, in Roman Imperial theology. And so at this particular, these particular games, there was a comet that appeared in the sky for a number of days and brilliant Octavian looks at that comet and says, that is the soul of Julius Caesar ascending to the right hand of the gods. Is that language familiar to anybody? And so if you are the, if you're the heir, if you're the son of Julius Caesar, who is now a god, what does that make you? It makes you the son of God. And so this was one of Caesar's titles. This is one of the, this is a component of imperial theology that Caesar is the son of God, the one who has the right to rule. So I think if we want to say, what does the son of God title mean, I think we could say it means that there's being a claim made that Jesus is the one who ought to be on the throne. Jesus is the son of God who should rule. Uh, And if that's the case, Caesar isn't. So you can see why Jesus and these first Christians got in hot water with the empire because they were making claims. Another title, Lord. Caesar was Lord. How then? No, no, no. The first Christian said, Jesus is Lord. They, they didn't reinvent the wheel. They went to Roman imperial theology very often uh, or their own roots and they would take titles and they would subvert them and put them onto Jesus and say that, no, actually this is what a, a Lord looks like. This is what a peace bringer looks like. This is what a savior looks like because all those titles were being used about Caesar. So the, chase that rabbit, come back to the question. Um, I'll say this first. My, my ultimate goal is to be what Brian McLaren talked about a couple of weeks ago—a deeply committed, convicted yet benevolent Christian. Um, to, so, so that I, I'm not living in hostility with other traditions. Um, and part of that is because being Christian is all I know how to be. I, I began attending church in the womb um, when I was I was born. My grandfather was the pastor of our church, and so we were there all the time. Yet I also know if I'd been born somewhere else, if I'd been born in another country where another religion is dominant, I would probably be that religion, right? Uh, The the Christian tradition is my mother tongue, but if I'd been born somewhere else, I'd be speaking very likely a really different language. Um, I, I think it's unfortunate that over the years, the Christian tradition... Has it had a little more humility? And instead, for far too long, we believe we have the market on God cornered. That if you really want to, if you want to know anything about God, you have to listen to us. You cannot experience God anywhere else in the world. But from a progressive Christian lens, we say this: we can be deeply committed to Jesus without demon, demeaning, demonizing, or dehumanizing another religious tradition, or damning and excluding them. Because what's the real question here? When we say, "Is Jesus the only way?" The only way to what? The only way to where i mean i think when we read that we're thinking of john 14 where jesus says i am the way the truth and the life and it's we're going to deal with this in a series in the fall i think i'm the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father to god except through me right i think that so number one this is not about going to heaven we, we turn everything into an afterlife deal um, this is not about going to heaven this question jesus is talking about is how do i come in contact with the divine how do i experience god um so Jesus doesn't make the claim that he's the only way to heaven. He makes the claim that he is the way to God. And then I would say, what does that look like? And in John, Jesus essentially says that um, what he's doing, he's the way to union with God, right? So Jesus uses this kind of language, like I, I, I and the Father, I and God are one. And then Jesus essentially says, I want to invite you into this oneness with me and with God. I want you and with me, God's spirit, you come join us, be in this, Um oneness with us. So when Jesus says he's the way, um, I I don't think he's making a case against other world religions. First of all, I think, and we'll come back to this, I think the Gospel of John is written by a community, and the whole point of the Gospel of John is to say, this is who Jesus is for us. Won't you trust him? Right? I I think that's what they're trying to say. This is who Jesus, we have experienced Jesus in this way. This is, for, for us, Jesus has been the way, the truth, and the life. And we have not experienced God in the same way anywhere else. I don't think it's saying that we have to say that if you want to experience God and you're not, I don't think it's saying that, oh gosh, if you are another religion, then you really just have sort of a fake counterfeit God. I think that it's possible for lots and lots of Christians to have a fake counterfeit God. I've been accused of having a fake counterfeit God. I'm sure many of you had. So, right, there's there's this issue in the world where we're just trying to push everybody out and have one little safe insulated group that gets it all right. And it just doesn't exist. I love this image. Marcus Borg uses where he says, I mean, the truth is all world religions aren't the same and it's actually unfair to try to paint them with that brush, but they are trying to do some similar things. And he uses this image of a big mountain that's peak is stretching into the clouds and can't be seen. And he says, at the bottom of the mountain, we are really, really far apart right? Our, our doctrines are different. Our liturgies are different. Our way of our, our languages are different. Our images are different or like all of that's different. But as we start m- trying to move toward ultimate reality, like whatever the th- truth as we start trying to move closer and closer to reality. Then some of those differences begin to fall away and we can actually, like we all ascend together. So I would say I, I've met uh, Muslims and Buddhists and, uh, Jewish people and people from lots of different religious traditions who I believe have had a deep, uh, sustaining and nourishing relationship with God. And it is is not right, and it is not fair, and it is not Christian to go to them and say, actually, you don't have a relationship. No matter what you're experiencing, no matter how your life's being transformed, you don't have a relationship with God because you didn't do it through our way. I don't think that's what Jesus is arguing. I think that the way Jesus embodied can actually be found being embodied in other traditions. And for me, that just, the idea that I can see this, like for example, this whole golden rule teaching, it pops up everywhere, right? That In, in, in positive and negative forms, but don't do to others what you would not want them to do, do to others what you would want them to do to you. There's this beautiful, like we, we tend to all agree, in theory, if not in practice, we tend to all agree on that. So I, I don't think that when, John, when Jesus says, I'm the way and no one else, I think what Jesus is saying is the way I'm embodying, the way you're seeing me live is the way to engagement with the divine. It is a way to becoming fully and beautifully human. And if it's actually a real thing, why wouldn't we be, why would we be surprised to see it popping up in some other places where other people are having similar experiences of the way? In my mind, that doesn't uh, diminish our faith and it doesn't diminish their faith. What it does is it actually gives us all sort of a shot in the arm. Like we have the potential and capacity to engage in this way and it could change every single one of us so that I don't have to go over to the person who's different than me and say, you aren't doing it right because Jesus said it's fruit. It is by the fruit that you know, it is by the fruit that our lives are ultimately Evaluated not just someday distant in the future, but even in this present moment. So, do I think that we that Jesus is the only way? I think Jesus embodies the way, and I think other traditions have people who embody the way. And if we listen to them, we can join them and experience it. Jesus never thought this was a solo gig. Jesus always talked about, um, if you're my disciple, carry, there's a cross. For you to carry in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, "You're going to do greater things than you've seen me do." Jesus was never saying, "I'm the, I'm the full and final." What Jesus was saying is, I, "I'm sort of, uh, I'm sort of the, the archetype. I, I'm showing you what it looks like to be fully, beautifully human." And now take the ball and run with it. There's a lot of work to do in the world, and instead of disagreeing and arguing with people who are in a different family than you are maybe figure out how can our families work together because we all have a common goal here and that is a sustainable life a, a flourishing life in this world for our descendants and I believe that when we do that I, I believe I have experienced God in beautiful ways and people who use a, a religious language that is not my mother tongue and that I'm very very barely conversant in And I I would not want to say to them that your understanding, your experience of the divine is wrong and mine is right. Because I believe that the God in whom we live, move, and exist is big enough and her love is wide enough and mercy deep enough that this God will do everything in their power to expand the circles and to bring all the kids home, whatever that looks like. The Christian tradition needs to stop being an afterlife racket and start becoming what it was always intended to be and what I think it was in the beginning, a path of liberation and transformation. And my hope is that the work we're doing here together, Grace Point, is helping that just a little bit. And if we can move the needle just a little bit and if other people are in other places are moving the needle just a little bit, then who knows, anything is possible. So today, I want to wrap up Um th- this is uh, this week makes a year since we've held in person gatherings and I'll never forget what um, that day was like when I think it was we had on a Wednesday night. We had a, a, a welcome event for people new to our community at um, the I think Richland Library maybe and we left that night knowing that there was talk going on that this pandemic was becoming a thing but had no idea that like the next day we would make the decision to suspend our in-person gatherings. I even remember, I think in the video I made to share that news with you, I I said something like, we're gonna shut down for a few weeks and we're hoping to be back by Easter. That was like three weeks away. And here we are a year in. So much has happened in this year. So many people have been sick. So many people have, have lost their lives to this virus. So many people have been really bad at loving their neighbor because they're refusing to mask and distance and do all the things we're told that would help stop the spread of this virus. And because of that, this virus spread like wildfire. We've also seen some really beautiful, truly beautiful human moments where people put their own health in jeopardy to help save their fellow human beings. Doctors, nurses, frontline workers, I think about all the people who still have gone to their jobs in uh, restaurants so people could have takeout, people who have shown up at grocery stores, all of those people who have given their time and energy, put themselves at risk to help keep the rest of us nourished and healthy and safe. And we also reflect on how much I, I grieve and you grieve. I'm sure those of you who were in person with us grieve not being able to be in person together over this last year and yet we're also celebrate earlier i said you can hold two things at once you can hold you can hold pain and sadness and you could hold joy you have two hands you can hold both of them at the same time so we grieve those losses and at the same time we celebrate the larger grace point family that now have joined us from all over the world and some of you who have joined us and you've reached out and you've said hey i'm here i'm in I'm in Argentina. I'm in South Africa. I'm in Germany. I'm in North Dakota. I'm in Florida, California, Texas, wherever you're joining us from. You have been such a source of energy and hope for us, for me and for our staff and for our leadership council, as we've seen you connect with Grace Point. And one of the things people always ask me when I get an email from somebody for the first time who's just found us They say something to the effect of, I love Grace Point, is this going to stop when you're back in person again? And I begin every email with something like, I'm so glad you found us. You you do not have to worry. We are committed to you. And we are committed to you, those of you who are joining us from all over the country and all over the world. You are not um, sort of out here and the core of Grace Point is here. You are part of us. And my commitment to you and the commitment of our leadership to you is we are going to make sure that. When on that glorious day, when we're having in-person gatherings again, that we're doing so with you in mind, making sure your experience doesn't change.